This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 134th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on RainierAvenueRadio.world. My special guest today is uh, Seattle KJR 93.3 Sports Radio update anchor Neil Scott. Neil, I'll get back to you in a minute. Uh, my podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage my listeners to click the like button right on my show. You can also uh, watch my show on YouTube and some of the other outlets I mentioned. My uh, producer for the last couple of months is Olivia Coyne, good friends with her family. Olivia is a UW student, doing a good job. Neil, I'm going to get back to you now, give you a little more of an introduction. And Neil Scott has done a lot of public service work on the issue of alcohol addiction. Uh, he produced the first alcoholism telethon co-hosted by the famous actor Dick Van Dyke, one of my favorite actors. I'm definitely going to ask you about that. Uh, Neil has spent about the last 15 years as an update anchor at Seattle's KJR Sports Radio. He covers the Mariners, Huskies, and Seahawks for various radio national networks. Neil is the co-host of uh, the Men's Health Monthly Show on KJR. Do I have that right? Great. Great, great. Well, Neil, I really appreciate you coming on the 134th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. Congratulations to you on 134. Uh, I do a podcast, and I think I'm now at 68. Uh, uh, it was based on a show that we did on terrestrial radio on iHeart called Recovery Coast to Coast. But uh, a podcast is such a great format because it, uh, it allows you to expand and have great content as much time as you need, whether that's 10 minutes or an hour and 10 minutes. So congratulations to you, Paul. Well, thanks, Neil. I'm having fun with this. And, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't have millions of listeners or anything, but having fun with it. And obviously, would love to see it get bigger, but I appreciate your words. I know you have such a long career in radio. And, you know, I guess my first question for you, Neil, is uh, tell us how you got the radio bug. Oh, my God. It was way back when I was uh, in my early teens. Uh, I was about 16 or 17 and met some friends that also were involved, wanted to get involved in radio. And interestingly enough, they had different uh, different paths that they wanted to take. One wanted to be an engineer. One wanted to be a salesman. Several wanted to be on the air. So we got together and a number of businessmen in the area. I was born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, got together and, and uh, donated a, uh, a a place. It was a street front store uh, that had uh, uh, been vacated. Uh, we built the radio station. Uh, the teenagers did. And we were on the air like 10 hours a day playing rock and roll music. Now, it was a tenth of a watt station, which meant that on a good day when the wind was strong, we would probably get about eight blocks away. But the neighbors loved us and the merchants in the in that eight block area loved us. And from there, it was just, uh, you know, full speed ahead. The radio station only lasted less than a year, I believe, because everybody got jobs in real radio. Uh, I got a job doing all nights on WPRO radio in Providence as a disc jockey, uh, then moved up to uh, uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. WAAB did mornings there, moved out to Southern California, Worked there for a while, over to Santa Barbara, and then up, up to Seattle. Love it. Santa Barbara's a great town. Does have cousins there? Love it. Love great it. There. It's gotten pretty expensive. How did you like growing up in Providence, Rhode Island? It was different. It was, uh, there's a lot of crime back then. That was kind of organized crime, uh, mafia, if you would. Uh, they pretty much ran the city, but, you know, it was uh, it was good. I, I enjoyed my, my, my years in Providence. The, the joke is the mafia does some good for their communities, right? They do. Actually, they do. Uh, the the uh, quote-unquote godfather back then was a guy named Raymond Patriarca. And this guy would give away stuff on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and he'd show up at things, and he was like, you know, the, like the godfather. Uh, and, and yet behind the scenes, uh, <laughs> he did other things. Up to some, up to some other stuff. You know, you've been do you've been the update anchor for many years at, at Seattle's KJR 93.3, formerly AM 950. And, and many people in the region have heard you do updates. Kind of tell us about that process. You know, are, are you given updates of stories you're supposed to update or do you have creative discretion to decide important stories that should be updated? Creative discretion. Now, less in the last year or so, they've, they've, They've they kind of went in a different direction with with COVID and and some of the updates are more now national. 
And what I'm doing now more is is the uh, the Men's Health Monthly Show, Recovery Coast to Coast, and working for CBS Radio covering the uh, the Seahawks and uh, uh, NFL Network covering the Seahawks and, and different networks for the Mariners and but uh, and but doing the updates, whatever is news in sports would be in the updates. And unfortunately, when the national updates are on, they don't get a lot of the local stuff that's going on. That's a little unfortunate, but that's the way of the business. Radio has changed dramatically since I started 60 years ago. Oh, my God. (laughs) The years go on. Neil, what would you say in your in your years at KGR? What do you think has been the most um, biggest sports news story update you've ever done? The biggest news story update: Sonics leaving. Uh, That was uh, I'm I'm still kind of in shock from that. Uh, And of course, uh, on a positive note, the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. Uh, I get a chance to go back to uh, New York. Uh, for that Super Bowl and, and just, just had a great time. And, and also, of course, the Mariners in, in the playoffs, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in 91 and, uh, all the stuff that went on there and Softy and I went back, Dave Softy Mahler from KJR. Bit of my show. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's a piece of work. I got him started in radio. I think I heard that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I created the monster. Yeah. No, Softy does a great job. Um, are, are there too many stories deemed as big breaking news stories these days in general? I think we overuse the uh, the sounder of breaking news. Uh, I know when I hear it, I run to the radio expecting a big story. And it's it's not. It's it's the race to be first in many cases uh, to get it out there. So, yeah, I think I think we do kind of overdo the breaking story and the same way with television news as well. Everybody wants to be the breaking news station. Every time you see, turn on CNN, you see the caption breaking news these days. Yeah. Yeah. Neil, what, uh, so a lot of the, the biggest sports update stories you've done at KJR seem to be more local sports stories than national. Is that kind of how you'd measure the, in terms of defining the, the big KJR update sports stories? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we're the voice of the Huskies and, and the Huskies always make news. Uh, in the, in the last year, the news has been, been crazy with uh, all the stuff going on with uh, with the Pac-12 now down at the Pac-2 and uh, uh, you know all of the changes and Jen Cohen leaving and th- there's always news it seems at the UW but it's uh, I-, I think this is going to be a great season for them I really do. W- would you put the story Neil of Jen Cohen leaving um, in terms of trying to quantify it as an update story maybe not as big as the Seahawks Super Bowl the Mariners playoffs but definitely a pretty big one huh? Definitely a pretty big one, based on how long she's been there and based, based on where she's going, uh, which is stunning. Now, uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues seem to think, well, she deserves it and it's fine. I, I, I'm not sure. I, loyalty in, in sports. Uh, I, I was just I was just taken by her move. I was a little mildly surprised by it, but not shocked by it. Yeah, but um she, I don't know Jen well, but she strikes me as being intrigued with sort of the L.A. scene. I could see her kind of kind of be fascinated by that scene down there a bit. But anyhow, uh, be, go ahead. When the Huskies play uh, uh, USC and uh, what, what's, what her feelings will be and where she will be, that's going to that's going to have to be rough for her, I'm sure. Like our friend Softy said, seeing her in a USC colors was a little weird. So, you know. yes. Neil, I'm not going to ask you, you you can't answer this this way if you want, not necessarily who's the best sports radio host you work with. Who would you say is the most knowledgeable on sports of all the sports radio hosts you've worked with over the years? Most knowledgeable over the years. Oh, boy. Um, I'd have to go with Softy. I'd have to go with Softy. You know, he does his research. He's he's in it one hundred percent. When I first met him, he, he was what I call the five tool player of of radio. He had the passion. He had the 
uh, the, uh, the background. He had, the, the, you know, when, when he went over to KJR for the first time, I mean, he kicked the door in and he's always learning and uh, he's very opinionated, but his facts, it's all based on facts. And to me, that's, that's what it's all about. And he's a good interviewer too, Sati. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. And I think our our friend and colleague Ian Furness is knowledgeable on various sports topics. Absolutely. And, you know, he, his work on both television and radio, and it's not easy to kind of do both of those at one time. Uh, he is an exceptional talent in doing that. You know, one thing about Dave and Ian that I want to share, and I know both of them, not extremely well, but I know both of them. Um, they're different kind of guys, although they're friends, but they're, they, they're humble guys. They're not, no one is going to accuse Safi and Ian of being arrogant guys. You know, I think they're approachable guys. And, uh, that's something about, about Dave and Ian that I want to share. So, yeah. And what you see is what you get yeah. on the and off the air. Yeah. No, for sure. So, you know, you've done a lot of work, um, in, in addiction, um, advocacy. And I, I want to ask you a few questions about, um, alcoholism and your work in it and so forth. A couple of my questions may be a little different, but I'm just, you know, I'm curious. I, I sometimes sort of ask some questions, not always successful, but when I kind of ask some questions off, off the wall sometimes. So I got a question about alcoholism. Um, can one drink a lot and not be an alcoholic? Sort of like how one can be a little heavy, but not be obese. Give, give me your take on that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, it's what the alcohol does to you. Uh, there are some people who can only, you know, some people say, I only drink on weekends. Um, uh, are they an alcoholic? Well, it depends on what happens on those weekends. What happens when they drink? Uh, alcoholism is a, is a biochemical disease. It's a brain disease. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, heredity factors that go into it. Uh, nobody grows up saying, I want to be an alcoholic. But it happens. Uh, and fortunately, the treatment is available. And when people do recover, they become weller than well. Uh, I've had the opportunity to interview a tremendous number of individuals, famous and, and everyday people as well, who should have been dead, Paul. They should have been dead. So alcohol affects people differently. Uh, is there, can people drink too much? Well, sure. Uh, do, if you get a DUI, does that mean you're an alcoholic? No. Uh, it could be a matter of choice on that night. There's a lot of factors that go into it. But when alcohol becomes a problem, that's problem drinking. And that's when you need to take a look at the patterns and, and take a look at what you need to do to reverse that. Whether it's a 12-step program like AA, whether that's going into treatment, some people can stop on their own and and. God bless them. You know, everyone is different and recovery is different for everyone. I always say the bright side of addiction is recovery, uh, which was the theme that I used for the telethon that I did way back in the 70s. Because when people think of alcoholism, they they don't think of the bright side. They think of someone they know who is still sick and suffering. They think of somebody down there at Second and Pine. Uh, they, they think of the skid row drunk. They think of a family member, a co-worker. They don't think of what happens when people find recovery and there's some great ways to find recovery neil you hear that term sometimes a functional alcoholic what's your take on that term uh yep there are people who can be functional alcoholics but alcoholism is a progressive disease and at some point it's going to get worse and there are going to be problems and uh intervention is going to be necessary uh some they, they some people can drink, you know, so I can drink you under the table. Uh, I know a lot of people who can do that. Uh, but, but it's going to progress. Uh, alcoholism does not remain static. Uh, the, the, you know, the, it's, it's again, what alcohol does to you. Can you be functional up to a point? Yes. But once you cross that point, no. So different kind of, kind of issue, but, and I don't, I'm not a healthcare provider or anything, but, but I, I, there's different levels of attention deficit disorder. There's different levels of alcoholism, right? And different yeah. types of Right, right, right. There is, uh, I will tell you this, that both of my parents died from alcoholism. And that's how I kind of wind, wound up in the alcoholism field. I didn't know that my dad died of alcoholism until I was running the National Council on Alcoholism in Santa Barbara. 
Uh, I was told that he died of a cerebral hemorrhage when I was seven years old. Uh, and that was that was the story. And we had a, a family reunion. My aunt came down from Palm Springs and she said, God damn it, Eileen, if you don't tell him the truth, I will. Your father died going through the DTs at Rhode Island Hospital. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather because here I am running the National Council on Alcoholism. And I had no alcoholism in my family that I knew of at the time. And then a year or so later, the more I learned about alcoholism, the more I realized that my mother was an alcoholic. Significantly, Paul, I never saw her drunk a day in her life. But there was never a day in her life where she didn't consume at least a six pack of beer to maintain that level of functioning. Uh, they, people would say, your mother can't be an alcoholic. You know, she doesn't get in trouble. She doesn't miss time from work and all of these things. Yet eventually it caught up with her physically. Uh, she wound up uh, having distemper marks and she was rushed to the hospital. And um, they finally got the alcohol removed from her system. She was in a nursing home for about a month and a half. And one of her roommates had a bottle of wine one night and said, Eileen, do you want to drink this? And she drank it and she died that night. Oh. Uh, but yet I never saw her drunk a day in her life. So there are different types of alcoholics. Uh, they all need recovery. You said you were seven when your dad died? Must have been hard. Must have been hard. Yeah. Um, what, what are the characteristics, Neil, of a good treatment program for alcohol issues? Uh, number one, staff. You know, there's a lot of ads, very flashy ads about treatment centers that make it sound like you're going to a freaking resort. Well, a treatment center should not be a resort. Uh, it should be a staff. It should have credibility. It should have longevity. Uh, do your research. If you're looking for a treatment center, there are a number of fine treatment centers in, in uh, the state of Washington. Uh, there's a treatment center over in Yakima that's been doing it for 55 years. How long has a treatment center been in operation? Uh, how 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 long has the staff been together? If there's a big turnover uh, in staff, I'd kind of stay away from that treatment center. So a good staff makes a good treatment program. It isn't the you know the swimming pools and the fancy stuff, and there's a ton of those around, uh, and a lot of them are very expensive. Uh, but the, the quality comes from the staff. Good feedback for people who are dealing with that issue. Uh, Neil can. I read this once or twice, and, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but I've read that some experts believe that alcoholism can be treated by reducing the alcoholic's drink versus complete elimination. What's your take on that? Do, say that again. By I've read that some experts believe that alcoholism can be treated by reducing uh, one's drinking versus total elimination. What's your take on that? Well, if you, I think you're talking about moderation management. Uh, and if it's alcoholism, it can't be regulated. It, it you know, it, it just can't. Uh, you can say, okay, I'm, I'm only going to have X number of drinks a day or a week. If you exceed that, then there's a problem. Uh, and if you don't, maybe you're not an alcoholic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I, the very beginning, and I, I mentioned this in the, the Facebook introduction post I did of this interview. Tell us about, about the, uh, telephone you did with one of my favorite actors dick van dyke tell us about that tell us about dick van dyke a bit i'm intrigued dick van dyke is a wonderful man he's still going strong i think he's almost 98 years old uh <laughs> and i gotta think that his recovery had something to do with that he's a guy in long-term recovery when i moved to santa barbara to run the national council on alcoholism uh i had been doing the i'd been anchoring the early news in bakersfield california in the abc affiliate and Bakersfield and Santa Barbara are drastically different environmentally. <laughs> uh, Bakersfield's kind of in the desert and Santa Barbara's, you know, paradise. I always wanted to move to Santa Barbara. So they offered this job and I said, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, I don't know anything about it. And they said, we want you for your media skills. So they brought me in, they offered me the job and I decided to take it because partly it was in Santa Barbara. Uh, and they said, you can think outside the box. Uh, being a nonprofit organization, they needed to raise money. And I said, why not a telethon? And people looked at me like I had two heads. You know, a telethon for alcoholism? What, are you going to have a poster drunk? 
Uh, and this was back in the time of the Jerry Lewis telethon and, and, and all of that, where, uh, you know, quote unquote, legitimate diseases were having telethons. And I said, you know, this is where I came up with the, with the, with the concept of the bright side of addiction is recovery. I said, if we can get a number of celebrities together to do a telethon, to let people know that alcoholism is a treatable disease that can and should be treated. And so the, the, on my board was uh, the general manager of KEYT Television in Santa Barbara. He said, well, I will donate the time, 18 hours, starting after the news on Saturday night, going up until prime time on Sunday. And you you figure the rest out. Uh, I got the Earl Warren Showgrounds to agree to donate their facility. So then I needed a celebrity. Uh, at that time, Dick Van Dyke was known as a person in long-term recovery. But how to get to him was, it seemed like it was impossible. But I had a friend who knew a guy named Bob, Bob Palmer. Bob Palmer was Dick Van Dyke's manager. And uh, he said, I will ask Bob if Dick is interested. So that was, uh, I think it was on a Monday morning. And by noon, I got a call and my secretary said, I don't know whether this is a joke or not, but I have Dick Van Dyke on line one. Whoa. And I answered the phone. He could not have been nicer. He said, I love what you're doing. I love the fact that you're bringing alcoholism out in the open. You're talking about it publicly. It's not about AA and church basements. It's about a disease that affects so many people. And he said, I am delighted to be a part of it. How can I help? And I said, well, uh, are these dates available for you? And he said, yes. And he said, if you need other celebrities, uh, d don't be shy. Tell them that, you know, I suggested that you call them. And it's, it's pretty difficult getting to celebrities. You can get to their, you know, the people who manage them and they're, you know, they're paid to keep people like me away from them. Uh, but if you get to them individually. So I contacted uh, a couple of producers in LA that were doing telethons for other diseases. And I said, can I come around and hang out backstage and just, you know, pick off your celebrities. They're already here for you. So I'm not, you know, taking them away from you. Uh, and he said, sure. So I went down and there was one particular telethon uh, that Dennis James was hosting. And there were a lot of high profile people, including Frank Sinatra. Well, Frank Sinatra came in backstage with a bunch of bodyguards, not surprising. And when a lot of people came in backstage, everybody gravitated to them. But with Sinatra, everybody kind of <laughs> backed away. Well, I had more guts than brains, and I probably still do. Uh, so I went up to him and I said, Mr. Sinatra, my name is Neil Scott. I run the National Council on Alcoholism in Santa Barbara. We're having a telethon, and I would love to have you be a part of it if you're available. And he looked at me and he said, who put you up to this? He said, is this a freaking joke? He said, come on, a telethon for alcoholism? You got to be crazy. This is a joke, isn't it? He said, no, it isn't. And he said, you know, a lot of people think I have an alcohol problem. What is an alcoholic? So suddenly I'm standing there talking to Dick Van Dyke about alcoholism. So I'd given him my card. And all of a sudden he got called on stage. He did a couple of songs and they ushered him out. I didn't hear any more uh, after that until about a month before the telethon. I got a call from a guy named Fred Skidmore. Uh, he was Frank Sinatra's agent. And he said, Mr. Sinatra asked me to give you a call. We are going to be in Las Vegas that weekend. Uh, we could probably take a helicopter and get over to Santa Barbara. Uh, we won't know until the very last minute. It probably will be in the middle of the night after he finishes his you know, gig at the Sands or wherever he was. But it would be very unhealthy and unwise to promote the fact that we've even had this discussion. You know, I need to know where I can get a hold of you 24 seven uh, in the days preceding the, the event. And, uh, you know, if, if he shows up, great. I need to know where we can land a helicopter, security, and all those things. Bottom line, he did not show up. Uh, but a month later, we received a check in the mail with a little note saying, I hope this helps. Sorry, I couldn't make your telephone. Uh, so you've interacted, not too many people in this world have interacted with Dick Van Dyke and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Uh, and, and Dick Van Dyke went on to do a number of things in the, in the field. He was involved with, it, with an event I was uh, a part of a year later called Operation Understanding, where 50 prominent people got together in Washington, D.C., people who were celebrities 
in the mainstream and people who are celebrities in their own sphere of influence. Um, one of those was uh, James Kemper from Kemper Insurance. And there were judges and there were police officials and businessmen. But celebrity wise, it was Dick Van Dyke, it was Dana Andrews, it was uh, uh, former Senator Harold Hughes, uh, Congressman Wilbur Mills, who stood up and publicly said, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of being an alcoholic. I'm I've gotten treatment. I'm in recovery. And if you've got a problem, you need to do that as well. And Dick Van Dyke led the way on that. And uh, it opened the door for so many others, including Betty Ford. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I did an interview with Betty Ford that I recently found from 41 years ago. I used on a, on a recent podcast. And, and she talked about how Dick Van Dyke was very instrumental. Uh, in, and she thought if, if he can stand up and not be embarrassed and talk about his alcoholism, maybe I can too. Uh, so he's been very inspirational. I want to ask you about Betty Ford a minute. Uh, by the way, our, our colleague Brian Apker told me that uh, Little Scott has the best stories. So I uh, uh, host of Recovery Ghost to Ghost, worked with him at KJR. What a talent. I love that man. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to ask you, is, is Dick Van Dyke as affable as he seems? Absolutely. And and on screen as well as off screen. I mean, that is just who he is. Uh, just just a, a wonderful very giving, very genuine person. Married a woman about 45 years younger than him. He has a very a much younger wife, about my age, you know, so, so it seems like a, a fun guy to spend time with. Uh, what, what, did you like Betty Ford? I love Betty Ford. Uh, I, I met her ri- originally in England. I'd, I'd flown over there to set up a, a cover story for a magazine I was editing called Alcoholism and Addiction Magazine. And she had invited me to her home in Palm Desert, uh, and at the time she was only sober, gosh, maybe a year or two. This was before the Betty Ford Center. Uh, and we spent about 45 minutes in her living room, uh, talking about, uh, what happened, uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, how she went into treatment, what happened with the family, the intervention that was done uh, with her in the very room we were sitting in. And it was kind of, kind of funny because at, at the end of the interview, uh, and I did not do it for radio. I did it for print, but I had the recorder running for background. And it was good enough that I was able to use it on the uh, on a recent podcast. Uh, about 45 minutes into it, I heard the door open and close. And I heard this voice down the hall saying, honey, I'm home. And it was President Ford. And he came in and, in, and we were talking. And, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to go for a swim now, honey. I'll, you know, we'll we'll talk when this is over. And so she was just, just delightful. And again, another one who has helped so many uh, with her honesty, with her integrity, and with uh, with her passion for recovery. And you were able to spend a couple minutes of present for it, too? Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. And he, he seemed like an affable man as well. He he was wonderful. Uh, uh, but so much different from Jimmy Carter. I also met Jimmy Carter. Uh, I went to his, well, actually, I did the story on his brother, Billy. Uh, now Billy Carter, for uh, I'm sure a lot of younger people don't even know what that name signifies, but uh, he had his, uh, he was uh, the, uh, the brother to President Carter. He was an active alcoholic. Uh, he ran a gas station in Plains, Georgia, had his own line of beer, Billy Beer. Uh, and at the height of uh, uh, of his alcoholism, he was, you know, uh, negotiating with the Libyans and, you know, urinating on the runways and he was just out of control. He eventually sobered up and he was sober about 12 years and he developed pancreatic cancer. Uh, and his wife called a friend in Southern California uh, and wanted someone to do the final story on Billy. And so uh, they contacted me and I flew down to Plains, Georgia. So Billy was pretty sick at the time. And he said, we're going to have to do this in segments and I'm going to have to take some naps. So we started in. And one of the questions that I asked him was, at the height of your alcoholism, you were pissing on runways. You were on the front page of the newspapers. You were just of an embarrassment to yourself and to your brother, who was the president of the United States. How did that affect you? How did that affect him? And he said, Sybil, that's his wife, Sybil, honey, go call Jimmy and have Jimmy come over here and talk to Neil. Well, I thought Jimmy lived in Atlanta. And suddenly in walks President Carter. 
He's wearing a, 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 a pullover shirt and a pair of jeans. And I said, Mr. President, he goes, uh, no, no, it's just Jimmy, just Jimmy. And it was such uh, a difference from the Ford home uh, with Jimmy. He was within a matter of five minutes, Paul, he was just a good old boy from Georgia. And he said, uh, he said, at the height of my administration, we had a news conference and gas prices were in the tank. Uh, we were having trouble with the economy. Uh, uh, the, the, I was trying to get the hostages out of Iran. We had a news conference and everything, uh, all of the questions were about Billy, Billy Carter's drinking, my brother's drinking. He said, I've got that in my presidential papers, if that would be helpful. I said, sure. He said, well, come on over to my house. So we walk out the kitchen door and down a walkway and through a fenced area into President Carter's home, uh, into his office. Uh, and he said, give me a minute. And he finds it and he, he pulls it out and, and he hands it to me. He said, just get this back to me when you're done with it. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what I don't know where my car keys are. I lose things all the time. I spill coffee on things all the time. I said, all we need to do is make a, a copy of these four or five pages and that will be fine. Uh, and, and we spent some time together that day talking about all the things that he did to try to get Billy well, to force him into treatment uh, and, and what it took to finally get him get him sober. Um and he, he was just just an amazing man, but so different from the Ford family uh, that was uh, you, I knew I was in a home of the president, uh, former president, when I was in uh, Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Ford's home. Pancreatic cancer has really hit the Carter family hard. I think the president Carter has lost several family members to that terrible disease. Uh, yeah, he's, you know, it's what's he's, that? He's still going strong. He's another one that I thinks 97, 98 yeah. years old. Yeah. I think he's been 99 this year. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's been on hospice for many months. He seems to still be, <laughs> still be at it. Yeah. Um, Ford and Carter interestingly became friends after that 76 election. Hmm? They ended up having a pretty decent time on the uh, president's club. I read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so tell us for a minute a little bit about your uh, the men's health care show that you co-host on KJR. I do that with a with a doctor, uh, Tom Walsh, who is the uh, medical director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center. And basically, it's designed to talk about the issues that men don't like to talk about. Uh, men traditionally don't like to go to the doctor. They don't like to get their checkups. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a macho thing and, uh, it's important that men get their PSA. I don't know whether you, when you had your last PSA taken, if it hasn't been in the last year, Paul, I encourage you to get it done. Go in. It's a very simple procedure because it saves lives. And interesting, we were doing a show on prostate cancer, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, we were encouraging men to do that. And I realized I hadn't had a PSA test in like five years. So I said on the air, I'm going to get one uh, in the next week. And when we have the next Men's Health Monthly, I'll report back. I had a PSA and it was through the roof. I had a biopsy and found out that I have prostate cancer. Now, it is uh, it's very minimal. Uh, it is very regionalized. And uh, I am on what's called active surveillance. Uh, I go in six months, every six months, talk to the urologist. Once a year, we get a biopsy and we keep a good eye on it. Uh, but it's important to do that and to do that regularly. And not just for cancer, but for all things. Men need to get a health checkup at least once a year. And many men don't do that. So we try to encourage them you know, with the facts and, and with some... Uh, some general prodding. Good feedback. Great feedback. Good, good public health message there. By the way, Neil, I'm going to kid you for a minute. Can I call you the, the Forrest Gump of KGR with all these people you've met? You know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm fun. I'm fun. Well, I've asked this these two questions to about every guest I've had since about late 2019. It is a sports-based show, and you, you've been in the sports radio field for many years. Um, who is a living sports figure you would enjoy interviewing or chatting with can be a general manager or an owner, a player, someone who's still with us. You would find fascinating to talk to. And who's a deceased sports figure in history. You would have loved to have interviewed or spent time with. Babe Ruth. <laughs> uh, 
I, I did interview uh, the first baseball game I ever went to was Ted Williams' last game. And he had a home run in his last at bat. He had a, uh, uh, a bad relationship with the fans and they always booed him and he didn't come out for a curtain call. And, and he was pretty much known as kind of an asshole. But he was my asshole. He was my hero. And he always was a hero. Fast forward to about 19, 1990, the All-Star Game in San Diego. I was working for ESPN Radio. And they had the old-timers game. Then. Uh, they don't do that anymore because they don't want people's last view of their of their heroes as people who can't even bend over and pick up a ground ball. But they had that. And before the game started, Ted Williams was the honorary uh, captain. Uh, uh, they were dedicating a freeway in his honor in San Diego. And so he was, he was the focal point. And so ESPN said, if you can get five or 10 minutes with Ted Williams, that'd be awesome. So I had to wait in the pecking order of, of the, uh, uh, of the TV people and the beat writers. And, and then, you know, radio com- <laughs> comes in last. So I went up to him and I was scared to death because of his reputation. And I figured he's going to blow me off. And I introduced myself and I said, is there any way I could get about five minutes with you just real quick and ask a few questions? And he couldn't have been nicer. He said, yeah, come on over to the dugout. Let's do whatever in the dugout where we won't be bothered. So we went off the field, went in the dugout. Meanwhile, the clock's ticking. The game's going to start soon. They're getting ready on the field. And uh, another player comes and sit next, sits next to me in the dugout on my left. I don't know who it is. I can't turn because I'm facing to the right with Ted Williams. And th- the guy waves at Willie Mays, who is the honorary captain of the National League, across the field. Willie trots across to say hello to whoever it was that's sitting next to me. And just about that time, I wrap up the interview. The announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, please stand for the national anthem. We all stand. Willie Mays is on the top step of the dugout. To my right is Ted Williams. Paul, to my left, Joe DiMaggio. Wow. wow. I was in this triangle of the greatest. So uh, I have met my, my greatest heroes in doing that. Who I would like to talk to now uh, gosh, uh, does it have to be baseball? Could it be? Oh, any... no, it could be, it could be a sports executive. Someone in the sports world that's still with us. You enjoy spending time with an owner, a general manager, an agent, whoever player. Jeff Smullyan. Uh, and, and, and what he did, you know, with the Mariners and the ownership and, and that whole history. I find that fascinating. Smullyan was uh, one of my recent guests. Really? Yeah. Very interesting guy to talk to, and I, I, I liked him personally. He gave his narrative of what happened. By the way, he answered uh, the deceased sports figure. He would love to have spent time with his Ted Williams. That was Jeff's answer. Yeah, that right. question just a couple weeks ago. He also, I think, mentioned Willie Mays as the, the living sports figure he'd like to spend time with. Yeah, so nice. you'd nice. put Ruth and Williams, combination of those guys, as the deceased sports figures. and you. And Jeff Smoll would be the living sports figure you'd find most interesting to spend time with. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Maybe get him on your podcast. You know, he, he's, uh, yeah. No, he's, he's a pretty approachable guy. I found him very approachable in my uh, chat with him a couple weeks ago. Wow. I didn't see a Jeff Smolian answer coming. Um, that, that, that's fun. That's fun. Um, Neil, you had a long career in radio. Um, who is a living person in the radio media field that you'd love to interview or spend time with? And who's a deceased person? in the radio media field you would have loved to have interviewed or spent time with well one guy i did spend time with was my hero growing up uh and that was uh finn scully and i had the opportunity to meet finn the first time the dodgers came through mariners were playing in uh, in the kingdom and i went up to the booth and again the guy could not have been nicer i had a picture taken with him in fact it's uh right here on my see that or not oh love it great great love it i got and and he spent time with me and brought me into the booth uh and and just uh yeah it was a thrill to do that uh as far as uh those that are still uh still alive uh bob uecker i've never met bob uecker uh and would love to to spend some time with him Great names. You know, I, about a week before Vin Scully died last year, I had the, the Kraken TV broadcaster on John Forslund. Heck of a nice guy. 
And John said the living sports figure he'd like to spend time with is Vince Scully, right before Scully passed. So yeah. his name's come up now a couple of times on this on this show. Great yeah. answers, great answers. Well, um, I had Greg Lewis on my show last week, and we talked on everything imaginable about Husky football. Uh, I know you cover them uh, for a radio network. Uh, what is your take on all this conference shuffling? What's the Neil Scott take and everything going on? On the conference shuffling? Yeah. Change is hard, uh, and I'm having a hard time keeping up with all of it. Uh, I, I think we saw this come with the NIL, with the transfer portal, uh, uh, w- with the various changes going on. I think you have to wait and see. Uh, the Huskies being in the Pac-10, I think, is awesome. Uh, I, you know, hopefully it will be awesome. Uh, it, you know, they may be the, the, you know, the small fish in the big sea. Uh, competitive, uh, uh, you know, competition for recruiting is going to be intense. Uh, it'll certainly be interesting. Uh, I, I just feel so bad for, for Wazoo and for Oregon State. Uh, they're kind of you know, left out. I'm not sure where they're going to go or if they're going to go, uh, or what that's going to look like. Uh, I've, I've been a big, pan, big fan of the Pac-8, the Pac-10, the Pac-12, and now I guess the Pac-2. Uh, I don't like it, but the networks run college football. Money talks in bullshit walks uh, and it's it's a shame but that's the way it is i mean now you don't know when the huskies are going to play until like 10 days before at what time they're going to play until the tv networks say well it's going to be a 12 30 start or i mean last week was 12 30 which was kind of deja vu it was you know a great a great saturday 12 30 kickoff it's been a while since we've done that uh so the network's they're, they're calling the shot big money uh, and big money is taking over college sports and it's sad, but you got to accept it and you just got to kind of, kind of roll with it and see where it's going to go. It's going to be a very interesting five years uh, from this point on to see where it all goes and how it, how it uh, figures out. I want to get back to the Huskies, man, real quickly. I love Bob Uecker and those old Miller light ads. So I, I <laughs> he was really funny in those, in those ads. So, um, I, uh, you know, there's some talk that maybe at some point you could have 40, 50 division one programs just break off and start their own leagues. A lot of people wonder what's going to happen in Sublime. It, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Again, the, the, the TV runs it. Uh, will the fans show up? Uh, they're not going to turn away from college football. The, 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 the fan base is there. Uh, you know, I, my answer is I don't know, but I'm anxious to find out. I, it's very intriguing what's going to happen with, with big-time college football in the next several years. You know, I want to get your take on this, Neil. I, I grew up in Seattle. My late grandpa played for the Huskies. So, so they're, you know, I have a real tie to the University of Washington. I graduated from UW and everything. But I don't know. I hear this from a lot of fans, people who really support UW football and, and University of Washington. People are not don't seem to be enjoying the games as much as they used to. Uh, part of it's the timing of the games. Part of it's the prices. I'm just not the enthusiasm barometer, even though Huskies have a good team this year. I don't know, Neil. Give me your take on that. I just It just seems like growing up in the 70s and 80s, the enthusiasm barometer was was a little more higher. I don't know. I just Give me your take on that. I, I think you're right. And back then, there weren't as many other things going on. There weren't as many distractions. There weren't as many other sports that are all coming together. Um and the, the, the timing of the game, again, 10, 20 years ago, you knew it was going to be, if it's going to be a home game at Husky Stadium, it's going to be a 1230 kickoff. Uh, a lot of older people who are, who have been season ticket holders for so many years, give their tickets away if it's going to be right. a seven start. Uh, and people coming from outside of Seattle, it's a big pain to get here and get out. Uh, and especially when you don't know in advance what time the games are going to be. Uh, a lot less distractions, you know, back in the 70s. Uh, and I, there's no answer to it. I mean, th- there's more things to do now. People, you, you're, you know, you've, you've, even with the Internet and um, uh, events going on around town, 
people's almost their uh, uh, gosh, their intensity, I, I guess. Uh, people can't follow it along as closely. And even look in the stands, and, and there doesn't seem to be the kind of excitement that I used to see back in the 70s. Neil, you've seen a lot of the country. Is, is Husky Stadium the, the uh, nicest college football stadium you've seen? Greatest setting in football sport, in, in, in major college sports. Absolutely. It really uh, is a nice setting. I think that last Saturday up in the press box, looking down and saying, man, this is, uh, this is it. Neil, you cover the Seahawks. Um, any thoughts on 2023 squad? Sure looks good on paper, but it ain't played on paper. Uh, you know, as with every season, it's going to come down to being staying healthy. Uh, and, you know, last year, the opening game, Jamal Adams got hurt. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about this team. Uh, Bobby Wagner coming back, not just as a player, but as the inspirational man for the, for this, for the Seahawks. That is huge on and off the field. Uh, and, and if Gino can put together what he put together last year, at least in the first half, uh, of, of last year, uh, I, they've got a better O-line, a better D-line. Uh, it, it looks real good. Uh, and I'm glad they're playing the Rams the first time up because they don't look real good. So uh, if they get a good head start, uh, I'm, I think they'll make the playoffs. Do you, uh, Pete Carroll, I think, has a couple more years left on his contract. He's 72 years old. Do you see Pete going past age 75 maybe as a coach? If he wants to. Uh, I, I, I would love to know his secret. I mean, everybody would love to know his secret. I mean, he's got more energy than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, as long as he wants to coach, he will coach. And he still loves it. Uh, it's in his blood. Have you ever acted with Pete Carroll much? Um, not as much as, as, uh, uh, as the baseball managers, but, uh, you know, yeah, occasionally and he's, he's always been a decent guy and again, full of energy. And, uh, I, I'm, after the games, uh, I usually interview the uh, uh, the star player of the team, whether it's you know a visitor or the home team. So, but not usually Pete Carroll. I usually just do the players. Who who's a baseball manager you spend a lot of time with? Loved Lou, <laughs> loved Lou. Uh, you know, and, and Bill Plummer, and uh, gosh, going way back to, I guess it was Jim Lefevre was the first one. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and I love Scott's service. Uh, I, I wish he would show a little more emotion, a little more anger when they lost. Um, but he's a different kind of baseball manager. What, but was, he's a good what was Bill Plummer like? I haven't heard that name in years. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, he didn't last too long, but he was, uh, uh, very affable, very easy to, to, uh, to talk to and, get interviews with and was very open. Um, but again, there was, there's nobody like Lou. Uh, I actually met Jim Lefebvre once. And for the listeners, yeah. he was the Mariners manager in the early nineties. The Mariners had their first winning season, 91. They went 83 and 79 when Lefebvre was the manager. And I met him at a, in, in London. I was in England um, doing a law school abroad program. And I walked up to him. There was a little like baseball event. And uh, within like a minute or two, he started telling me how bad the Mariners organization was when he was there. He seemed like a pretty outspoken guy. Yeah, yeah, Good. he was really, really. With within like a minute, he just started unleashing about some stuff, you know. So um, seemed kind of like a character. Yeah, another guy that uh, that I interviewed, I, not when he was there, but since, uh, was Maury Wills. Maury Wills uh, had a very short term uh, as as the manager of of the Mariners because he was. Uh, uh, he was addicted to cocaine. Uh, he, he left uh, Seattle in disgrace, went down to Southern California, was living, uh, gosh, under a house. And, and Don Newcomb, uh, uh, who's another guy who was in long-term recovery, uh, he, he found Maury and, and got him into treatment, and got him got him well. Brian Apker and I did a great interview with, uh, with Maury Wills uh, about his recovery and about... Uh, you know, his years in Seattle and what it took. I tried to get him to uh, 
uh, I, I talked to uh, one of the, uh, the VPs at the Mariners to have Maury throw out the first ball at a game uh, because I had booked Maury to a, for a speaking engagement up in Yakima. And, uh, and this particular guy said, no. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, he's a, he yeah. was a historic baseball figure, Murray Wells, and Brooklyn Dodgers yep. member. I mean, that, yep. that's that's too bad. Yep, and I think he was the second black manager in Major League Baseball. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to throw out a question to you. Mariners are playing really well right now, and we've never been in the World Series. And tell me if you agree with this. I, I want to get your take. You cover the Mariners. You work in sports media. I think if the Mariners made the World Series, it could be bigger for Seattle than even the Seahawks making the Super Bowl. I'll tell you why. One reason is we get at least two home games in Seattle where the the community would feel it more. Would you agree the World World Series in Seattle would be bigger even the Super Bowl? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean this this town has been waiting and waiting and waiting, and they've had their hearts broken over and over again. Uh, they have come close. Uh, to getting into the playoffs, but a World Series, this town will be turned on its ear. Uh, yeah, it would be bigger than the Super Bowl. I think so too. I, I'd be bigger than an NBA championship, bigger than a yeah. Stanley Cup. All those things are fun, but I think if some of the World Series, I think would just be this town would this town would would be almost um, would t- would almost stop for for a while, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, Neil, yeah. what a great what a great chat! I'm so glad you came on. And uh, what is in the future for Neil Scott? Uh, just, uh, keep doing what I'm doing. Keep running. I have, I have a, a, a daily running streak right now. It's 40 days without missing a day. Oh, but until March 20, March 26th of this year, I had, uh, eight weeks short of 20 years without missing a day. Uh, and then I, uh, had an unfortunate fall in Kirkland where I broke my clavicle, eight ribs, fractured two vertebrae and punctured my lung. Uh, for good measure, spend time in Harborview. Uh, and so that ended that streak. But I love to run. Uh, I'm a daily runner, and that just, you know, just keeps me going. Neil, what a, what a great hour. Really appreciate you doing this. You and I will be in touch. Thank you, Paul. Uh, what a fun. Congratulations on, uh, on, on all of the work that you're doing on the podcast and keep, keep going strong. Thanks, Neil. It means a lot for me. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that.